Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be back on the air and returning to the network. Our feature will start momentarily. Hey guys, welcome to, I guess, our inaugural deep dive episode. Uh, part one of our Last of Us Part 2 exploration. My name is uh, David DC McNeil, media crit, author, internet person. Wow, <laughs> really should have prepared an introduction for myself. <laughs> uh, I'm joined today for part one by Danielle from Level Story. Hello. Danielle, what do you know about what we're going to do today? <laughs> I just know it's about The Last of Us Part 2. That's literally it. I mean, mm -hmm. you kind of went over a few things before this, but like Neil Druckmann, otherwise, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's it. Basically, my intention with this one is the first part is going to be kind of a really uh, a deep dive exploration into the way that this project came to exist at all. Uh, and then part two is going to be uh, you, myself, and a few other uh, media crit uh, people and journalists kind of getting stuck into the the play-by-play -play of the analysis. I imagine that's probably going to... That second part might tip upwards of like three hours perhaps, but for this one, we're going to sit back and just enjoy the story of Neil Druckmann, The Last <laughs> of Us, and some of the controversies along the way. Um, we're going to be getting into topics like Druckmann's introduction to Naughty Dog, uh, Hennig's departure from Naughty Dog under particularly contentious circumstances, the ways in which Druckmann's professional history seems to be ever malleable to whatever suits the necessary narrative that Naughty Dog wants to tell, and maybe get into a bit of just his philosophy and his belief system, particularly around uh, women and storytelling, as those are like two kind of key components of the things that his projects are lauded for. I, I'm ready. I'm I'm super pumped for this. <laughs> Danielle's like I'm strapped in. I'm, <laughs> sorry, my, my cat is like distracting me as I'm talking. But anyway, let's begin. It's been too long a time since we've spoken. Judy and Jerry Druckmann gave birth to their son on 5th of December, 1978. Neil Druckmann. They raised Neil on the West Bank. This is significant for a few reasons. The West Bank borders Jordan on the east and Israel on the west and north. In the preceding years before Druckmann's birth, the West Bank has been contested over and over again. Do you know, like, much about the kind of Israel-Palestine conflict and that sort of stuff, Danielle? Very little. Like, I know of it, but, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't explain it to you. We'll kind of go through some of the top-level stuff. I think the important thing to keep in mind is that everyone thinks that they're on the right side of this thing, whether it's, like, America, like, Allied Forces... Uh, Russia, uh, the people involved themselves, everyone seems to believe that they have, that the, the sort of their claim is the most valid, uh, regardless of, of whether or not that's true. Mm. Uh, in 1948, uh, the West Bank was captured by Jordan, only for Jordan to then annex the territory again in 1950 and lose it in 1967 to Israel during the 1967 Six-Day War. Without getting too granular, the Oslo Accords have attempted to find a compromise where Palestinians and, Israel and Israeli settlers can share this space. This is unusual for so many reasons, chief among them that for a time the West Bank was considered under international law, but mostly because these two peoples do not cohabit well, and we'll get into that in a second. But it's interesting that the Oslo Accords had to get involved to actually decide who owned this for a period of time. It was under international law for a while. Like, in the space of 20 years, it was captured, lost, captured, lost, captured, lost. Like, it's just this turbulent history mm. of, of violence and, and um, people claiming it for their own. 
Such proximity of the two peoples together has made the West Bank a hotbed for violence, both economic, political, and physical. Israel has been accused of using access to water treatment and control of sewage as, quote, warfare of ecology. They basically use the West Bank as a sewage dumping ground in order to maintain environmental regulations elsewhere in their occupied holdings. So Israel kind of treats um, the West Bank a bit like a sewer, which is not a great sign for a place where your people live. Hmm. Somehow Palestinians in the West Bank have it worse for all five municipal wastewater treatment plants, save the Al-Barer plant built with German, provide poor water quality, being at once inefficient and underperforming the task of actually sanitizing water. And if this sounds like terrible living conditions, it's because it is. To add injury to insult, the Israeli government erected a literal physical barrier made of fences, vehicles, and more. As of April 2006, the barrier is roughly 703 kilometers long. This act cut off 8.5% of the West Bank, including tens of thousands of Palestinians. This was viewed by many as an incredibly illegal attempt to once again annex Palestinian land. Regardless of who you believe owns the West Bank, the Israeli government treats them like a sewer, and the Palestinians can't or won't provide enough financial aid to their people living there to significantly change the quality of life for those on the West Bank. The problems with this area have grown over time rather than diminished. Violence, of course, has only increased during COVID-19 lockdowns. This is directly from uh, Medi uh, Medicine Sans Frontières, which is the uh, Doctors Without Borders, but like mm. the French one. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> that'd be great if every um, charity organization was like, it's that, but the French version. Right. <laughs> uh, quote, episodes of physical and verbal assault, stone throwing, damage to Palestinian property and vandalizing cars, houses and agricultural property are very frequent in this area added to routinely heavy-handed operations by the Israeli military, says Zayk Ekilai. Uh, I cannot say this man's name, but I will give it my best, says Zed Alkalani. The result is a pattern of widespread relentless violence that is taking its toll on the mental health of thousands of people and the well-being of entire communities. This adds to the more common cause of stress and anxiety, such as family issues or lack of financial security, that Palestinians share with other societies, which... Palestinians share with other societies across the world, he continued. This virus and the lockdown aren't reversing the trend, end quote. Oh. The reason I start us off on such a gloomy <laughs> bit of context is this is the environment that Neil Druckmann is growing up in. Mm. So when people say, man, his stories are really grim and dark and, and like, you know, there's so much conflict and not, doesn't, doesn't seem to be a ray of hope anywhere, <laughs> you, you, you kind of get why. You kind of get where he's coming from. Yeah. Um, Young Neil Druckmann grew up in this turbulent environment. As a result, his brother introduced him to comic books, video games, and movies as an escape from the world around them. Together, they bonded over art and games by Sierra and LucasArts, which helped young Neil learn English. So never say George Lucas hasn't done anything good for the world. <laughs> that's, a little, that's, that's a little dig at George Lucas. Yeah. I feel like this is like the classic, like, um, origin story of like the hero, right? It's like, right. you know, turbulent area. Mm. You find your escape through fiction and then, you know, you become like the greatest author in, in the West or something like right. that. Right. <laughs> Which I, I feel like Druckmann might, I mean, he hasn't said it, but he might think that of himself from what I've heard. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get, oh, we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he thinks that of himself and we'll get into the reasons for that later. Okay. But I think it's probably the kind of thing he would say, mm. um, even if he doesn't necessarily internally believe it. Gotcha. 
And that's maybe part of the problem. Mm. In 1988, the Druckmans moved from the Israeli sewage dumping ground to America, an entirely different world. Druckmann was intensely interested in visualization and coding. He developed his first game, Pink Bullet, for Linux and Windows with a handful of his buddies. We know this because he put it on his resume, which is archived forever. <laughs> and I did a bit of digging. So I've done so much research into Druckmann's life. And I just want to read you um, his like mission statement from his resume. You know, you put like a personal statement at the top. Yeah. It's really good. Um, it's really cute. Quote. Uh, so this is like his, his mission. Quote, an internship in the game industry where I will be able to apply my programming and my artistic skills to further my knowledge and understanding of game development. Quote. Uh, and that came from the, the uh, webarchive.org um, uh, from a particular uh, copy of that resume. But it's cute. Like, it is really sort of wholesome. This is like 2003-ish. Um, mm. For your reference, Daniel, this is kind of like... Um, he's a grown-ass man at this point. But, like, mm. you know, in this period of time, like, he's still trying to get into the industry and he's still kind of got this hopeful, like, air to him. He's just like, I want to mm. learn. By this point in 2004, Neil had obtained a master's of entertainment technology from Carnegie Mellon University and had a bachelor in computer science from Florida State Uni. His coursework is stashed with high-level mathematics, software engineering, computer science, and some art. At this stage in his career, there is nothing particularly unique about Druckmann. He is yet another grad who wants to make games but isn't really sure what he wants to be. He considered animation, programming, tried them all out, so on. It's a tale as old as time when you have a computer science degree. Druckmann would later point to a course he took with Jesse Schell as providing his key game design philosophy. I think this is complete bullshit, but I do think Druckmann believes it. <laughs> we'll get to that later. This is a trend that I just want to flag for you before we get into the rest of this, which is that a lot of Druckmann's career is like this very convenient narrative. Mm. Like Jess, Jesse Schell wrote like the formative seminal book on game design mm. and it's like yeah of course of course neil Druckmann happened to be in his class right like a lot of the a lot of the a lot of it has that tone to it um and the extent to which some of this is verifiable it gets really tricky like i couldn't find a single source that confirmed mm -hmm. that shell was teaching at carnegie mellon during the time that Druckmann attended oh but i also couldn't find anything that said that jesse shell didn't if that makes sense interesting Hmm. Yeah, and it, it gets into this really weird gray area, and I'll, I'll try and, I try and call it out as we go through, but so much of his life is just completely anecdotal because this was, like, pre-Facebook. Um, he wasn't a big MySpace guy. There was no, like, historical record of what you were doing, and I think this is a problem that we're going to see less and less as, like, time goes on where everyone is documenting everything for no reason. Druckmann, like, is able to manipulate and, and apply his life to suit the context because there was no record-keeping. Um, mm. and this is, this next bit is where it gets really tricky. So Druckmann was allegedly paid to attend the games developers conference, GDC at around this time in 2004, Druckmann claims he attended a presentation by Naughty Dog co-founder, Jason Rubin. Rubin of course worked on Crash Bandicoot and Jack and Dexter produced by Naughty Dog. The man is largely unknown outside of the developer community, but in their hallowed halls, he is held up as an icon of the industry, having touched some of the best praised games of modern entertainment and not turning out later to be a sexist secret douchebag. Mm. Anyway, Druckmann claims he bugged world-renowned games producer Jason Rubin for a business card, and some months later, Rubin offered Druckmann an internship. The reason I'm so sus on this is this is the exact story that Todd Howard tells of how he got his job at Bethesda. Really? 
He just turned <laughs> up to like E3 after E3 and he kept being like, hire me, hire me, hire me, hire me. And eventually they did. Um, hmm. So I don't know. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that Druckmann's lying about this. It just, man, it's convenient. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely know what you're saying. It, it is convenient. Maybe it did happen. Do you feel, <laughs> maybe, maybe, I mean, the fact that he was paid to go to GDC and I couldn't find anyone indicating who hired him to do that? Well, that was my, I, I was surprised when you said that, that they would pay him to go to GDC at this point. That surprised me. Well, he wasn't working for Naughty Dogs. It, it might have been like the university or something. Maybe. I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to find a reason for that. Yeah. Because like getting into GDC at that time was hard enough, let alone being paid for it. Right. Yeah. This is back when they, these were like press only events. Like you couldn't just buy a ticket. Right. Yeah, it's not like GDC today where they like post their talks to YouTube and, mm -hmm. you know, it's much more accessible. It was 2003 right, or like, four, you said? Uh, 2004, yeah. 2004, okay. Yeah. But, like, that whole period is, like, it's literally, like, an industry event. Like, it'd be, like, right. going to, like, a seminar as a doctor, and, like, of course, that's right. when you, like, you know, pharmaceutical companies who are trying to, like, give you contracts, and, like, like it's it's a networking event. Mm -hmm. So, in that sense, it makes sense that Druckmann would have been able to secure, like, someone's business contact information. Mm -hmm. But I also just, like, don't know why he's there, and right. I can't <laughs> find any evidence of why. That's so interesting, huh? Mm. It'll become a bit of a trend for Druckmann. Okay. Um, yeah, here we go. I couldn't find any evidence of this online aside from anecdotes from Druckmann himself, so take his introduction to Naughty Dog with a huge grain of salt. This will become a pattern for Druckmann's professional and personal life. It's kind of hard to tell what's true and what isn't. Mm. Druckmann did not get back to Ruben fast enough, however, and soon after, Ruben made a very public exit from Naughty Dog. When I say he didn't get back to Ruben fast enough, someone else took the internship. Mm. As Druckmann didn't check his mail or something. Which oh my is god! Kind of great. Um, <laughs> it's like the dream job, and you just like didn't fucking check the post. Right. Um, I saw pretty soon after Ruben made a very public exit from Naughty Dog, criticizing the industry for failing to acknowledge the people actually responsible for making games. Instead, game directors and producers like Ruben get all the credit. So, like in this way, Ruben's kind of a boss you know, a little bit because. Like, Jason Rubin is one of these executives who goes, I get all the credit for this stuff, and none of the people that do the work get any credit. I'm leaving. Right. And he kind of sacrificed his job to do that, which is kind of kind of brave, I think. Yeah. That is um, actually... I'm, I'm su That's surprising to me. That is... Yeah. Brave, yeah. It's, it's like the opposite of what a politician would do. Right. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> um, uh, keep in mind, Druckmann goes on to be a game director. So we'll come back to that later. Just a note that this is the circumstances under which he joined the company was Ruben as a game director saying people aren't getting enough credit. This is what Druckmann is eventually going to do for a living. And so we'll see maybe hmm. the difference in their philosophy matriculate as we kind of talk through the next phase of his life. So at this time, Druckmann plays it down, but he was getting job offers out the arse. I'm going to skip some of the details to get us where we're going, but basically Druckmann got a role at Naughty Dog working on localization tools and gameplay programming for Jack 3. This is the game development equivalent of being a fucking janitor. No <laughs> one likes to work on localization. Mm. He periodically, and it's unclear if prompted or not, helped out with design work and constantly bugged Evan Wells, the game director, to let him do design work, which is a fucking cool attitude for your employee to have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, look, Just being like, I'm not happy. Let me, let me, come on. Let right. Me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me. Getting his foot in the door. 
uh, the audacity. I mean, yeah. look, you know, to his credit, but man, I just couldn't imagine doing that. I couldn't do it, honestly. Like I like in my head I'd want to do it, but I couldn't I couldn't actually do it, I don't think. It would depend I think on it's circumstances. Too yeah. yeah. I'd have to do it and then ask for forgiveness. Like that seems to be my MO. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's way easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, but So true. Druckmann's insistence on this and his career suggests he believes his artistic vision and design work is far superior to anyone he's worked with. I'm not saying Druckmann is wrong, but when we get, but when we get to our discussion of The Last of Us Part 2, I suspect this may be the very low bar that we've set as an industry when it comes to the quality of writing, world building, and storytelling in mm. games. At any rate, Druckmann was given a role in design for Jack and Dexter, The Last Frontier. This didn't last long as well as pushed Druckmann onto Uncharted Drake's Fortune as a resource to solve that game's development problems. Mm. This is where his career and like the games industry differ a bit. Mm. So allegedly he was working on uh, Jack and Dexter 3 um, and the way that Wells talks about it is he pushed Druckmann onto Uncharted because he could see the potential for Druckmann to jump in and solve some of their problems. The alternative version of events that I found that wasn't Druckmann's version is that Wells was like, get this fucking kid out of my face and put him onto a larger project where he could do less damage. Oh. I don't know which... They're, again, they're both completely unverifiable. Yeah. Uh, Druckmann doesn't seem like... Even if that was the case, I don't get the impression from him that he was like a bad employee. I think he was just really enthusiastic. So I don't, even if, even if that narrative with Wells is, is somewhat accurate, I think the, the timbre of it is probably not that. I think it's more likely that he was like, just give him more to work on. He's clearly bored. Like, I think that was probably more likely. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say too, um, when you're thinking of like a corporate office, like and how things work there, I, mean, I think it's a combination of, at least in my experience, like a memory thing. And also just like you just said, like, this guy's bored let him work on it <laughs> like let him go yeah so it doesn't hurt them to let him do that either right i think it's pretty telling that this this is like kind of his this is his big break in a lot of ways mm -hmm. getting onto this project and when you think about naughty dog now Druckmann is synonymous with that that name right um he's one of the first things you think of before you think of amy hennig which we'll we'll get to but Ooh. the fact that that is the case and his transition onto this project is kind of hazy is strange the contrast that i just want to draw for for brief comparison is that todd howard's life in bethesda is so well documented because they suddenly realized if they were going to have the golden goose boy be their poster child at all of their um, press events and their video game junkets and e3s and stuff like that then they needed to make sure that whatever narrative they were telling about howard was verifiable so they provided a, a quite a few resources. They've sourced and cited a lot of information about his life online and his career at Bethesda to basically prove, like, we're not making this shit up, guys. Right. Um, and I believe them for the most part. Like, I can't really find any holes in Todd Howard's story. Mm -hmm. um, but Druckmann, like, doesn't seem to get the same benefit of a doubt from, from Naughty Dog. They don't seem to have done any work whatsoever to make it seem like anything he's ever saying about his past is accurate or inaccurate. And I don't understand why. Like, this is pretty uncommon PR, um, particularly in the games industry when you're making someone into a celebrity. Yeah. Like, if you go online and you look at someone like Keanu Reeves, for example, you can find out a lot about his life because he's put out details 
now, like historically, to be like, oh, this is a bit of information if you're interested, but not like my entire life story. Right. And that's sort of the generally accepted way you do this kind of PR, where you still need to have a private life, but like when your personality is so intrinsically tied to your work and the integrity of your work, it's kind of an important thing that mm -hmm. people like have an idea of where you came from and that that stuff is true. Right. I don't know. How do you feel? How do you feel about like that it, part of it? It, it? As someone who doesn't know, well, definitely doesn't know as much about Druckmann as you do. It, it definitely comes off slightly shady. I mean, I guess the games industry is a bit different than like film industry, like speaking, but still like you would think that when you're looking at a person's career, you would think that things would line up and there wouldn't be a question about it. Like, it's very strange to me that you're telling me that, you know, different people are saying different things. Um, it's, it just comes off as a little shady. Uh, it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's my impression too. I think the caveat would be, I'm not trying to, Again, like all of it, like a lot of this stuff is, is just unverifiable. So that these aren't truth claims I'm making. But a thing that I also notice is that it's not it's not so much that Druckmann comes across as shady, so much that the people telling these stories all have agendas and reasons for telling them. Mm. And I find Druckmann's motivations more likely to motivate someone to lie than the other people telling it. Like the guy, I don't have his name in front of me, the, the guy that tells that story about Wells kind of um, dumping Druckmann onto a different dev team, like the motivation for that is that he, like Naughty Dog didn't, they basically, they, they asked, they pushed him out. Right. So he didn't work there anymore. So there was a reason for him to shit talk them. Um, whereas w uh, equally with Druckmann, it's like a lot of this stuff really boosts his, his bona fides when it comes to like, I'm just the scrappy underdog, look at me, instead of like, this dude's now a millionaire um, who is, like, pretty good at his job, but maybe not good enough to achieve the things he's aiming for. And that's where it becomes tricky because there is a reason for Druckmann to lie, but I just I don't know if he's doing it on purpose hmm. um, or if he just doesn't remember this stuff. It's so hard to tell. Druckmann then allegedly went on to work with Amy Hennig, one of the directors of Uncharted 2, and worked closely with her throughout on the story. For those of you who don't know, Amy Hennig is a fucking celebrity in the games development community. Mm -hmm. Danielle's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. the oh, fact yeah. that Danielle mm -hmm. even knows the name should tell you well. <laughs> yeah. This is a woman in the games industry. Like, this is, she's kind of a big fucking deal. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is where Druckmann's career gets even squintier and take everything I'm about to say with that grain of salt of allegedly. Mm. Every site that references this fact uses the same Edge Online art, the fact being him working with Hennig and really contributing to the story. Mm -hmm. um, this, thing, this thing happens on online journalism where if Wikipedia references a source about a fact and other people need to reuse that fact, they'll reference that source. So like if, you, um, so like if you're writing an article about um, the way that fish breathe underwater or something, and in the Wikipedia article there's a sentence that says, like, you know, gills work like this and has the reference... That what people do, what, what uh, journal writers and uh, people who write articles will do is they'll click through to that source, check that it does contain that information, then reference that same source. Mm. One of the problems with Wikipedia's referencing system in general is that this isn't how you verify information. You right. verify information by getting it from one or like more, more than one data point 
like data source that aligns that you can verify is accurate. So for this to be a verifiable fact, we would need to see a few articles that, or a few like different people saying, yes, on Uncharted 2, Druckmann worked really closely with Hennig on the story and was like a, there was like a real relationship and a partnership there. That's what I'd need to see for this to be a verifiable source for me. The problem is every single article that writes about this fact references the same fucking article. And that article is the Edge Online article titled, quote, and this is telling if it's going to give you any idea of what kind of piece this is going to be. Meet Naughty Dog's Renaissance Man, Neil Druckmann, oh, no. is the title of the article. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Renaissance Man is a term commonly lauded to be mean someone who's like a polyglot. So, you know, they're... Uh, a storyteller and an actor and a musician and a, a comedian. I, Donald Glover is like an actual Renaissance man. Neil yeah. Druckmann is a pretty good storyteller. Yeah. Um, is my caveat. Uh, but in this interview, Druckmann uh, tells the publication something approximating the fact that he wrote a lot on Uncharted 2. This is very, very, very anecdotal. I only have a few doubts that Druckmann worked closely with Hennig, but to what extent he influenced the design and story will forever remain unclear unless Druckmann himself provides any clarity. Hmm. The reason I bring this up is we're going to get into like how Druckmann gets into his leadership role at Naughty Dog and all those sort of things. And the fact that the project that kind of catapulted him there, catapulted him there is under this sort of uh, less than clear uh, series of facts. Hmm. <sighs> Again, I don't think he's a bad guy, but goodness, no. it is it is hard not to look at this and be like, something weird has gone on. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I, I can say is that, so I've been replaying through the Uncharted games recently, and knowing what I know about Neil Druckmann and his style of storytelling, it would make sense that he worked on Uncharted 2 on the story so closely, because that is arguably the best one at least in the trilogy not counting the fourth one um mm -hmm. so i could see like where his fingerprints would be where like where remnants of them would be i'd have to look closer to actually see but it, it would make sense that he'd be on there mm -hmm. but i don't and i know he's worked on them i just don't know to what degree so that's interesting yeah and i, I you're absolutely right I, I definitely feel his voice in those stories as well I think at least, at the very least, he was a huge component of developing what we would all consider to be their house style now mm. of storytelling. Yeah. Regardless, Uncharted 2's success won Druckmann the chance to work on a new project with Bruce Straley. Straley is one of my favorite game executives because mm. he's in the public spotlight and he's turned out not to be a giant piece of shit who mistreated his workers. Druckmann suggested an idea he had as a... Okay, so basically, like, what happens is um, he knocks it out of the park with Uncharted 2 and the execs are like, listen, we need new IP... Um, this was back when people made new games. Of course. Um, they're like, we need, <laughs> we need new intellectual property. Who's got an idea? And Druckmann suggested an idea that he had as a student uh, at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, now, the way that this is framed in a lot of articles is it's like a student like high school, like when he was in high school or something, like that use of the word student. Mm. Um, he was 30 when he came up with this idea. Like, he's, a, he's doing his master's. So I just want to make that really clear. Oh, um, hmm. Which would be... This will be important in a second when I read you out the idea. Um, so this is, like, a 30-year-old grown-ass man telling you this idea. So just keep that in mind. Okay. Um, this isn't, like... I had, this, I had this idea when I was 18. This is, like, a fully-formed grown-up man telling you this. Hmm. Um, 
regardless, the idea was a project with the gameplay of Ico set during a zombie apocalypse with a lead similar to John Hartigan from Sin City. And if that pitch sounds familiar, it's because it is. Now, Ico focused on immersion, stripping back unnecessary HUD elements. For some context, John Hartigan, the character he's describing, is based on Frank Miller's That Yellow Bastard in Sin City. Mm-hmm. Here's what Wikipedia describes Hardigan as. I'm just going to read you a description of this character, and I just want you to try not to picture Joel. Okay. <laughs> Quote, A veteran police detective of Basin City, Hardigan is gruff, stoic, and cynical. He is also completely selfless. He cares little about his own well-being as long as he can protect his fellow citizens. He risks his own safety and reputation to achieve safety for those he cares about, but this dedication eventually destroys his life. Hardigan possesses a seemingly indomitable will, able to withstand multiple bullet wounds without collapsing, and most notably being capable of willing himself back to life after being hanged. Hardigan has a distinctive way of narrating. He often talks to himself in his head, referring to uh, talks to himself in his head, referring to himself as stupid old man. End quote. So you can see the bones of this character already. Yeah, definitely. In in Hardigan, and that's a very good comic book, by the way. Um, if for those of you who haven't read Sin City, um, the, this character would go on to be played by Bruce Willis in the movie. Hopefully, oh. you can see where we're going next. <laughs> Um, to say that Druckmann's ideas were unoriginal is extremely unfair. Anyone who's played a Druckmann game knows it's about the execution of these ideas, not necessarily the ideas themselves. Now, originally the game was pitched as a gruff protector shepherding a young girl. But the gruff protector would have a heart condition, landing the player controlling the young girl from time to time. Uh-huh. These characters would eventually go on to become Joel and Ellie, the two characters we know. However, information about The Last of Us's development is thin, to say the very least. But here's what I could put together. Now, this isn't an extensive list. Um, there are quite a few resources out there. There's a lot of YouTube videos that just don't have sources in them, so I didn't include any of those uh, in here. Hmm. Um, a lot of people claim that Naughty Dog treat their workers quite well, um, and I can't really find anyone who disagrees. There is a tendency, I think with companies like Naughty Dog to gain what I refer to as like lifers when it comes to employees. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've experienced that in your own like professional life. I not personally, but I've seen it um, in my professional life. Um, And to your point, I know when part two of the last of us came out, there was a discussion about how hard the people were working there and kind of talking about how fairly they were treated. But take what I'm saying with a grain of salt because I only saw it very briefly on Twitter and didn't hear much about it afterwards. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a video game, video game company. The chances of them treating their laborers poorly is probably pretty high. Yeah. Um, but this is normal in, in software companies. I just want to make that extremely... People talk about this in the games industry like it's a fucking unicorn. This is how every right. tech startup works. This is like every software startup I've worked at in my entire life it's like this, and also you don't mind doing the work because you are working toward this big common goal. The problem is you're very rarely rewarded for that in, a, in the way that matters in capitalism, which is money. Right. Regardless, here's what we do know. As The Last of Us was being developed, some kind of personal relationship between Amy Hennig and Druckmann deteriorated. Oh. Hennig left Naughty Dog under less than clear circumstances. At the time, Sony and Naughty Dog were very tight-lipped about the reason for her departure. I tried to piece together as much information here as I could, but what I'm just going to do is run through the actual stuff I could verify. Okay. 
So the rumors spec, the rumors kind of percolating with that during this process of development, uh, some form of leadership or executives at Naughty Dog were pressuring Hennig to perhaps like do or like not do what Druckmann was asking, but like take his ideas more seriously than she maybe wanted to, or like give him more leeway than she maybe wanted to. Okay. Um, but that's complete speculation. So here's a snippet from uh, Scott Road from Sony on the reason for Hennig's departure. Now, for people sort of, I suppose, younger people who don't remember Hennig or people who aren't sort of well-versed in the games industry, she's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, she was one of the first, like, female executives in the games industry. Um, and we'll get to her views on that in a minute, and I don't, I don't think they're great. But huh. the reason this mattered is when someone like this leaves a company and they don't say why that silence often speaks volumes yes agreed uh so scott road from sony said quote things change and sometimes change involves very high profile individuals that's all that's happened here there's nothing else there's no more to dig at end quote which is exactly the kind of thing you would say if there was more to dig at (sighs) just it's just so shady it's just so shady danielle it's so shady (laughs) i i yeah i don't even know what to say honestly (laughs) it's It's like yeah don't look don't look any closer at this there's no bodies we promise right exactly it's like that's what you would say if there were bodies yeah um it gets a bit weirder. So then this is from Naughty. This is the co-presidents of Naughty Dog, the statement that uh, Chris Balestra and Evan Wells put out. Yeah. And they said, quote, as co-presidents of Naughty Dog, we are responsible for all studio affairs, end quote. That was all they had to say on the matter. Wait, what? That's it. Yeah. So what? someone said, why did Hennig leave? And they said, well, we're in charge and we're in charge of all studio affairs. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, Danielle, but I wouldn't necessarily describe that as answering the question. No, I I would agree with you. Hmm. These are all the exact words of people with absolutely nothing to hide. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's just a lot. Oh, no. Now, as for the precise circumstances of Hennig's departure, it's been speculated widely that Druckmann and Straley forced Hennig out. I cannot verify this or prove that this is what happened. However, that Naughty Dog used Sony to speak for them is somewhat telling. Mm. This is, like, unusual, too, because Naughty Dog are a pretty confident company when it comes to PR, but using their, like, big parent to do it is odd. I thought that was odd, too. I I think that's... Yeah. Like, I know Naughty Dog has made games for Sony. Like, they only make games for Sony, as far as I'm aware. Um, Yeah. So I understand that, but it just seems weird that Sony would speak for them in that matters like this. it's yeah. kind of strange even, like, outside of the game's development context. Like, it's just an odd, like, very, you know, if, if like, a rapper does something that is, like, public, in the public eye that is, like, less than favorable, the label doesn't come out and speak on their behalf. Like, it's just, like, an odd thing to happen. Yeah. Um, the, okay, I want to cast some aspersions on this rumor that, that Druckmann and Straley forced Hennig out because this is, like, the common narrative now. People believe this. Hearing Druckmann talk about Hennig now and even, like, 2013, there's, like, a professional fondness there. Mm -hmm. Um, So even if they did force her out, it seems to me that if that did happen, they maybe have reconciled in the time that's gone by. Yeah. Um, But the main, the really important thing here is that Hennig leaves and Druckmann and Straley are set to finish Uncharted 4, which... Okay, yeah. If this is unrelated to her departure, it's very convenient timing. 
Um, I was going to say, I, I was wondering what the years were for this, but that makes sense now. Okay. Yeah. So this is like, this is as this Australian Druckmann are now stepping into the big boy shoes. Right. Um, okay. And to, to what extent this is convenient. This is why people speculated they pushed her out because yeah. this is like awfully convenient. It's like, yeah, we didn't push her out. She left for reasons that we're not going to talk about, but uh, now we also have her job. Like, right. It, <laughs> kind of i'm like yeah you killed the king and you became the king just be fucking honest about right it. uh <laughs> however henning's departure didn't matter people fucking loved uncharted 4 right. fuck amy henning and her monumental contribution to the way narrative is delivered in video games fuck amy henning who broke into the games industry in an era where women weren't considered as valuable as their male counterparts fuck amy henning who worked on legacy of kane and is credited as single-handedly being responsible for the first three uncharted uncharted games delivering some of the most well-crafted considered lead female characters in games at the time without ruining its laborers hmm. it makes me so mad that this happened and sony and naughty dog didn't fucking say why she left and it just creates this vacuum where like why why not say because it just completely like strips away any shred of like authenticity that she had left in this project. Like, well, I, I just, well, okay. So I guess like, and again, like, so I know who she is. I'm very familiar, but apparently I'm not familiar enough because so a little known fact, cause I actually just brought it up on my phone. Um, in the first issue of level story, one of the big news things that I did was that she received a lifetime achievement award. Um, for like just her work in the games industry yeah and is still considered i don't know if she's still considered the creative director on uncharted 4 as far as i could tell um uh yeah well that's how she's credited but yeah right um but that's yeah 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 so i'm kind of like sitting here as you're saying this i had no idea about all of this drama i mean and to be fair i've only gotten more into naughty dog as a company in the past year or so so mm-hmm. this is all disappointing, not necessarily surprising, but disappointing. Poor Amy. Like, yeah, I, I, I kind yeah. of, I kind of, yeah, I feel the same way about it. I don't, mm. it's a tricky place to be playing in because a lot yeah. of this is, is, is not speculative, but it's, it's hard to verify. And, right. and, and I, I think maybe importantly, like their silence on her departure, it, it's that it inadvertently erased some of her contribution. I don't think they yep. did this on purpose. Um, but what they were able to do to, and again, this is like thinking about motivations and reasons for doing things. What it let them do was spotlight Druckmann and Straley as their like dream team. Right. And as Uncharted, uh, as Uncharted 4 continued to win just like shitloads of awards at the time, Druckmann and Straley stayed relatively silent. Um, and I say at the time, that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. They were clearly doing their jobs well. Like they work for this company. They can't just come out and say whatever they want. Um, yeah, oh, I was just going to say, um, speaking um, toward my own experiences, obviously, I've never worked in the game industry, but <laughs> yeah. speaking in terms of like a company pulling bullshit moves um, that maybe are in your favor or for people that you might care about. Um, I've been in that situation before. Um, yeah. If it, I guess maybe they didn't like each other if they if it were a friend of mine, I'd be more upset and I'd be more vocal about it. Maybe it was a contract thing. I don't, I don't know how any of that works, but just to say that I've been on that side of things, sort of, 
I, I kind of wish that they would have spoken out, but I understand to a certain extent because, you know, it's their jobs. Oh, and... yeah, I, I don't hold Druckmann and Straley accountable at all. I, I think yeah. they were doing their jobs. They were obviously under contract. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 no part of me um, is sitting here thinking like, oh, Australian Druckmann pieces of shit. Like, right, I think right. they just did their job. Yeah. Right. Advertising and products have been a part of America for as long as we've had entertainment. Here's a few of our favorites. This episode of the show is brought to you by my novel, Maynard Trigg. Head to maynardtrigg.com to learn more. Maynard is a young, loudmouth, difficult student who causes trouble for everyone in his life aboard the Skyport Carthage. One afternoon, a pirate called Mooney confronts him and explains he's in grave danger. What follows is Maynard's journey from Carthage aboard the great Sky Ferry, the Harmony, trying to escape this mysterious eldritch horror that pursues him. It's a fun adventure mystery story that deals with politics, growing up, and all the challenges that come with trying to find out just who you are and what your place is in the world. If you enjoy the kinds of stories that we talk about and you like the way that I tell stories, chances are you'll like this novel. So head to maynardtrick.com to find out more and grab yourself a copy today. Great, welcome back. So let's talk quickly about what happens next. So Henning's left the company and Druckmann and Straley go on to create The Last of Us. This is recorded fact. We all know this is about what this is what's about to happen. <laughs> In discussing the origins of The Last of Us and consequently The Last of Us Part 2, we need to address Druckmann's gender politics. Ooh. Before we do this, I'm going to tell you a bit of a story. When I was 15, I ran a Tumblr blog where I blogged about my daily life. It was a strange pastiche of Doctor Who gifts, snippets of prose, and reflections on my life. Many of these reflections were me contemplating that girls did not like me. Sexist comments like, quote, Why can't the guy sweep a girl off her feet anymore? End quote. Classic sexist bullshit. At one point, I even went full Zuckerberg and ranked the hottest girls at school. <laughs> I was a ginormous piece of shit when I was 15. I tell you this because I was also a shitty kid and being a shitty young man when I started university. So when I tell you about what Druckmann did next, I need you to remember I was also a piece of shit. I'm not condoning this guy. He's clearly grown and changed. So I'm going to read you a quote from The Verge in 2003 about the making of The Last of Us and particularly Druckmann's like, original idea. Okay. Do you know anything about like that original concept? I know nothing. Okay. Uh, I apologize in advance because it's kind of rough. Oh, no. <laughs> this is from The Verge 2013 um, when they were looking back at the first game. Uh, mm. Quote, The result was a pitch for a problematic title called Mankind. Just like in The Last of Us, the game was set in a world where Cordyceps has leaped from insects to humans, turning the infected into dangerous monsters and bringing down civilization with them. The key difference was that in Mankind, the virus only infected women. An early version of Ellie was the only female who was immune, and Joel decided to protect her in order to bring her to a lab where a cure could be potentially created. But they weren't able to sell the idea, especially after several Naughty Dog employees voiced their concerns. The reason it failed, this is Druckmann talking, the reason it failed is because it was a misogynistic idea, says Druckmann, end quote. So mankind, because all the women are zombies, is yeah. where the title comes from. Um... Now, Druckmann has talked about the sexist implications of this idea a lot in the time since. 
he clearly understands now that it was lazy and bad. But he was young. Not that young. He was 30. Yeah. It was a different time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I, the, the reason I provided that brief aside of me being an awful, awful young person is I just think it's important to give Druckmann a bit of leeway because he has clearly grown and changed. And that's all we can ask of, of, of these men in these positions is that they are listening and adapting and, and making meaningful change. Yeah. Um, I think that shaming people for things they've done in the past... Um, is a problematic behavior to start with. Um, yeah. I think what's more important is that people have the capacity to grow and change and evolve. And Druckmann, to me at least, seems like he's done that. Yeah. But <laughs> some of these sexist tones do find their way into his games regardless. Yeah. I'm just going to read a snippet from my article in, the, uh, in Level Story okay. on The Last of Us. Mm. Quote, the generally accepted reading is that the game examines how Joel's grief drives him to the brink of death and that Ellie's role as a stand-in daughter is to bring him back. It's a heartwarming story that appeals to the most amount of people. Like, man, how lovely that they formed this bond and Joel has something to live for. Hooray, it's great he's letting himself feel a feel again. Good on him, end quote. My implication, of course, being that it is marginally problematic to have a female's primary role in a story being to shepherd a man's mental health. Hmm. Um, it's a trope that we see over and over again in Western literature. I hate it and it's bad. <laughs> anyway, the game's development with multiple writers and a diverse staff sanded off some of these rough edges. Hmm. Reporting on the game's development outside of marketing material is minimal. Like, companies do this thing. I don't know if you've experienced this in the game scene, Daniel, hmm. but companies do this thing where they, they will put out material about the making of a project as marketing, like to yeah. sell the product. Yes. Um, so to what extent I believe it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I'm like, hey, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, you got to take that stuff with a grain of salt. There, it's, it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. is, yeah. Uh, I've written Dirty Dog here instead of Naughty Dog, which is very good. That's uh, amazing. 10 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> no, uh, Naughty Dog, that's really hard to actually read correctly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Naughty Dog seems very protective of their process, so I won't delve too much into the claims made by some ex-employees. But I will read from an interview with Hennig transcribed on PlayStationLife.net. <sighs> okay. <laughs> and this means that we have to talk a bit about Hennig's beliefs and political views when it comes to gender. Ah. But this is maybe an insight into, like, the conditions there. Yeah. Quote, it was really hard. The whole time I was at Naughty Dog, 10 and a half years, I probably, on average, I don't know, I never worked less than 80 hours a week. There were exceptions where it was like, okay, let's take a couple days off, but I pretty much work seven days a week, at least 12 hours a day. End quote. Now, that seems physically unlikely. Yeah. But we'll take it with a grain of salt. I believe that she probably did work seven days a week. Yeah. Executives in software companies do that kind of shit. Yeah. Hennig also revealed that it wasn't just her who was working a crazy schedule. And she said, quote, a lot of the team would work weekends as well. Naughty Dog is pretty much notorious for the amount of crunch, but obviously in a leadership role, you try and do even more, revealed Hennig, end quote. Now, as I said before, this is normal in the games and entertainment industry where funding and timelines are not independent. Very often the release date dictates funding and studios have to find a way to resource and produce to meet these deadlines. It's kind of contradictory in that way. But, these, but that these decisions stem from being upper management is kind of the issue. 
It's often argued that leaders in the games industry are beholden to stakeholders, and this is true, but not so much the problem. The real problem, of course, if you think about it for too long, is that employees of these companies are not compensated or considered as stakeholders. So rather than working for their employee, uh, rather than working for their employees, these leaders are pressured to serve investors, boards, owners, publishers, and so on. This is like the opposite of the co-op model. In The Last of Us's case, this process burned out quite a lot of employees. Right. And some of the most important ones, which we'll touch on in a second. Now, regardless, The Last of Us was released to huge acclaim. Nico Partners analyst Daniel Ahmed suggested that uh, to date, and this was about like two years ago, The Last of Us has sold over, have a guess, how many million copies do you think it's sold? Uh, I'm going to guess two million. 20 million. Oh my God, I'm so low. <laughs> Wow. I was going to say three at first, but then I thought, no, that's way too high. I mean, two million is a lot for any game, but 20 million? Holy crap. Wow. Like, they hit, this is like unheard of. Damn. On, and keep in mind, this is on, this is a platform exclusive. Like, you need to own a PlayStation for this. That's, that's just crazy to me. Wow. Yeah. So the amount of hardware that this game sold is the reason that Sony as a company still exists. Yeah. Aside from Blu-ray, obviously. Well, yeah. I mean, the game's part of Sony. Yeah. Like, they, this is, like, probably the most profitable thing Sony will ever do. Um, yeah. It won dozens of, uh, Game, of the, uh, Game of the Year awards, like, uh, scores of awards for, like, acting and gameplay. I'm not going to list all of them. They go to the Wikipedia page. It's fucking endless. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, like, if you can imagine a, an award in the games industry that a AAA game could win, this game won it that year. Um, now, games journalists temporarily lost their grip on reality. In the same way Halo's success uncovered a gap in our collective lexicon, The Last of Us drilled a giant hole into games journalism and filled it with anger and bad takes. Most of the criticism at the time was, in my opinion, bad faith. Mm. A lot of the criticism from people that just didn't want to like it was that it was pushing an SJW agenda for not giving uh. the player any choices or for the awkward shooting mechanics. Now, as far as choices go, this is a really dumb criticism. These aren't choice-based games. Right. The shooting mechanic, I tend to agree with. Uh, yeah. But the idea that it's pushing an SJ, SJW agenda is odd. Um, the I, first game in particular is kind of sexist, so I don't really like... I mean, where could that come... I mean... I would think that... It's because there's a woman in it. I was there's a woman main character, Danielle, and we can't have that in games. I, God for, I was going to say, the thing I, I was thinking of is the DLC, but even regardless, like any any game that has a woman or just anybody other than a straight man, or straight mm-hmm, white man, mm-hmm, um, is mm-hmm. going to get that label. So well, how can I identify with it? It must be pushing an agenda if it's not a straight white guy. Look, I obviously, sorry. Yeah, my bad. I'm going to... Jeez, gonna, Danielle, yeah. get with it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, it's pushing an agenda for having people that aren't me in it. So. Oh. One valid criticism I still agree with is around the gameplay. The Last of Us yeah. can be boring sometimes. Yeah. Boring isn't bad. It just is a state. As my therapist said, if you're bored, you're not anxious or depressed, and that's probably a good thing. Hmm. So to say that The Last of Us uh, having some boring bits is inherently bad is just kind of lazy. I think this interview with Druckmann makes his position pretty clear. In speaking about gameplay that isn't necessarily fun, in a 2018 Venture Beat article, Druckmann says, quote, You feel out the narrative element through the gameplay, Druckmann said. It took a lot of convincing to say it is okay to make something frustrating when it's helping the overall experience. It helps what you are trying to do with the characters. It helps the arc of the characters. 
end quote. So then it becomes a matter of taste, in my opinion. If you enjoy twi uh, Twitch shooters, you probably won't like The Last of Us the whole time. Um, <laughs> despite this criticism, it's inarguable that Druckmann and Straley pulled off something truly incredible with their first game. Yeah. They delivered a AAA action video game with deep, involved writing that explored new ground for Naughty Dog and for most people who play video games. Australia doesn't seem to get all that much attention in general. I don't think this is Druckmann's doing, and I just kind of want to explain why. Because um, mm. people have, like, lauded this as, like, proof that Druckmann is, like, stabbing people in the back to make his career happen. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, just as, like, a brief explanation of why I think this is the case, it's mm. very normal for video games and media in general to have multiple writers. Mm -hmm. uh, people have this idea that whoever gets the writing credit for a project should have written all of the like dialogue for instance right. but this is usually not very practical for example the witcher 3 has 450,000 lines of dialogue and over 950 speaking roles while the last of us pales in comparison to the scale of the witcher 3 it's still important to note that Druckmann has never claimed to be an auteur or the sole writer of anything he's ever done but the internet dotes on him mostly because he's the public face of his projects this is I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> I, I mean, obviously there's going to be a, a face to these types of things. Um, I think it's just, honestly, I think it's just sort of, I don't know if ignorance is the right word, but it's the only word I can think of, of just how this industry works. Because yeah. it's, not like, it's not like a novel. Like with a novel, you're... Novels tend to be a little more close to home. I mean, and even then, you might have two people working on a novel. Um, it just depends on the circumstances. But with movies, television, and games, it's such a different process of writing. Um, there's so much more mechanics that go into that that are different from like writing something like a novel. And that's <laughs> uh, just to bring... Uh, something completely different up but um one critique that's thrown at the television show downton abbey is that it mm -hmm. kept the same writer throughout the entire six seasons and that's a big problem because he needed other people in there to kind of change things up because he became too comfortable um yeah Challenge so yeah exactly so i i just think it's a bit of a just people not knowing how the industry works um yeah yeah but I also mean, like yeah. it's kind of it's a good myth like uh, the myth yeah. of like the individual kind of guy who you know auteur like it sort of plays into like a lot of the western mythology and plays into right. the mythology of like what the game is doing too so yeah that's part of the argument of like why people think that maybe Druckmann kind of believes this a little bit is that his stories keep happening to include characters like this I mean yeah. obviously his his works are deconstructions of that but like yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, the other thing with Druckmann is that he talks the talk as well. I just want to be really, really yeah. clear about that. He knows the right words when it comes to talking about story. Like, yes. he talks about genre conventions. Um, he talks about, like, the amount of research they've done into, like, their protective genre and stuff like that. Like, I, he's one of the few storytellers in the public space who talk about craft in a way that, to me, suggests he's done meaningful study. I think a lot of the time it's incredibly clear to me that uh, a lot of authors who get published don't really give too much of a shit about the craft itself. They just care about their process. I think Druckmann genuinely is interested in storytelling. I think he he's able to talk about this stuff in a way that is not just meaningful but insightful. Um, 
And maybe that's a part of why it's easier to believe that he's like the sole kind of storyteller on these projects. But yeah. as far as why Australia doesn't get the credit, I think it is just the way that people understand the way these projects are made. Well, perhaps gonna, there's a gap there in the, in the knowledge. Well, I was going to say too, I, and again, speaking completely as somebody who, who's still learning about Naughty Dog, clearly, because I, before you talking about this, I truly thought it was Neil Druckmann's thing. Like, I didn't know anybody. I mean, I figured other people were there, but large part, I thought that it was his concept and that he rolled with it. And I've, I've watched videos behind the scenes of him. He's the one they focus on. So as yeah. far as I was concerned, I thought it was his baby, which I guess in, in, in a way it is. Um, I didn't realize that somebody there, else yeah, was. There yeah. may be a more operational reason for why Australia isn't included, which we'll get to in a second. Ah, okay. um, Yes, there is a reason for that, but it is a good note that he seems to be absent in any of the marketing material as well. Yeah. It's just kind of curious. Um, but maybe this will enlighten you a little bit. Okay. Um, I am speculating, but it seems likely that uh, Australia being stripped kind of of the narrative isn't like some cabal to like get Druckmann anywhere. Because Australia left Naughty Dog right after the game's release. I couldn't find any real information about why this happened. Australia did take a sabbatical from development. In America, they call, like, extended periods of leave sabbaticals for some fucking reason. I don't know why. Um, Australia took Wait, an extended period of Wait, what do you... What do you leave. Can... <laughs> we would just say, like, he just took... Like, he just took a... Like, he went on leave. Like, but you got... Uh, like, I don't understand. I mean, look, not like, that I agree with it. America yeah, has a ton of a weird... America thing. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, like, well, like, we needed to invent a word for a thing that already had words for it. That's what we do. Um, yeah, Apparently. that's America, baby. <laughs> yeah. uh, he took a break from game development and then left Naughty Dog in 2017, but it today remains kind of unclear why. The closest I could find is a few articles that claim it was burnout, but, like, it's pure speculation. Like, these people mm. don't point to any source. Um, so the reason Straley wasn't really included in any of the marketing material is that he was probably on leave at that point. Mm. Um, and that kind of contributed to Druckmann being part of, like, the narrative being that Druckmann was kind of the sole contributor to the, the sole writer, like the auteur. Um, my impression of their working relationship from sort of listening to Druckmann talk a lot, because I've listened to a lot of fucking interviews with Druckmann for this. <laughs> my impression of their working relationship is that Druckmann had a lot of really cool ideas and Straley was the guy who kind of helped rope him, like kind of reel him back in a bit um, okay. and help, help him make those operational. That's kind uh -huh. of the impression I get. And that's okay. important to note because when it comes to making their next project, like Amy Hennig is gone. Right. The person who was like truly good at keeping Druckmann on track. Mm -hmm. And so is Straley, the guy who they brought in literally to replace Hennig. Right. Um, so Druckmann's kind of finding himself a bit untethered and he sort of spirals. Um, he tried to make the last of us movie that never really got off the ground. Right. He eventually mothballed the project himself um he just kind of like didn't really know what to do with himself it seems like he for a while there he just like didn't do any work on his games and just like play tested what remains of edith finch really like, he just kind of yeah, he just like did a bunch of like weird stuff around huh. the sony offices just to like keep himself busy it was really weird um interesting yeah do you, how does the um, out of curiosity do you know like where the I know the DLC, I think, came out, like, in 2014. Like, do you know how that factors in at all? Or did they just... 
Uh, well, that that was so that all happened. That basically that was done okay. more or less before the game was shipped. Um, okay, gotcha. From my understanding, uh, Druckmann like wrote the story with some other people, but he wasn't necessarily intimately involved. Like it's he wasn't super involved um, in the same way he was with the game. Gotcha. Um, okay. But that's I. Someone could correct me if I'm wrong on that. That's I vaguely remember that from an interview. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so he kind of like he doesn't really know what to do with himself, and eventually, weirdly, um, in 2018, uh, March 2018, he's promoted to VP of Naughty Dog, the vice president of Naughty right. Dog. Right. Yeah. Now, there's been some discussion that perhaps the reason he was so listless was that Straley left and he didn't really know what to do with himself. The other one is he was keeping his head down because he knew he was going to be VP and didn't want to, like, ruffle any feathers before he before it was officially announced. Whatever the reason, this is the time the studio was pushing for The Last of Us Part Two really yeah. heavily. So this is, like, really mid-development. Um, yeah. So more than likely, before he started the project, he was made VP and they didn't publicly announce it until this time. That's okay. probably the more likely situation. Um whether his ascension to VP was a condition of him working on the second game or not remains unclear. I suspect it probably was. Either way, Naughty Dog had pretty much lied in the time since and claimed that the early story concepts for The Last of Us Part Two were conceived during development of The Last of Us in 2013. They've been peddling this narrative and have stuck to it. I don't believe this for a second. I don't either. <laughs> well, I don't. You, don't, you, oh. you haven't done the research, but just like, what's yeah. your intuition? Like, why... Okay, I'm yeah. I'll, I'm interested to hear what what your research shows because personally speaking, just the way The Last of Us Part Part One ends, it just doesn't lend to a sequel. It's just one of those games that ends perfectly. It's ambiguous, but it's ambiguous for a reason, and it it knows it. It, it seems like it knows it. Um, I just can't see. I mean, I know you and I have talked off mic about this that like. Neil Druckmann said this is the story he meant to tell, and I just don't buy that at all. So I'm interested to hear. Yeah, look, I, <laughs> we'll get to it in a second. We'll talk about it a lot more in part two. Um, but to what extent Druckmann's lying and Naughty Dog are lying become unclear as yeah. they start to become the same entity? Um, my my opinion, and we'll talk about like some facts in a second, my opinion is that whenever you write any story you always kind of have an idea of what you could do to follow it up true um i don't think he had an idea for a part two um uh, i don't think he planned on making it but i think what happened is they promoted him to vice president and they said great now that you're vice president where's that sequel and i think that there's there was a whether it was actually in a contract or whether it was a tacit agreement that him being vp he would make them a second last of us that would be bankable because he made them so much money the first time. Right. That's kind of my speculation on it. Um, it's what I would do if I was an executive in that position. Um, it's hard to say. Yeah. But really importantly, he doesn't have a lot of the resources he did the first time. So I feel a more apt narrative in this case would be that Druckmann made a successful game and Naughty Dog needed a sequel. He had an idea of what might happen after, but to claim these as early concepts is a betrayal of the sheer volume of work Druckmann and co. did for the sequel. I say this narrative seems untrue because Haley Gross was brought in to replace Bruce Straley. So once again, Druckmann needs someone to look over his shoulder. Hmm. The reason Straley needed replacement at all is that Hennig had already left, as we've discussed. If there had been an idea for a sequel, as there is to any story, 
the proposal that these were well-developed seems unlikely given Straley's departure. But Gross has bona fides that placed her in a great position to contribute to the project and stand in where Hennig had previously done. Gross has worked on Westworld and Too Old to Die Young, Banshee, and Scent of a Woman. From her credits, I can only summarize her strengths lie in character study and plot and violence. But she's also a woman. I genuinely believe Druckmann values diversity in his projects, and every decision in, in his career does support this fact. So I think the claim that he's deliberately sexist, or somehow, like, uh, there's this idea that maybe he's, like, this closet sexist, I, just don't, th I don't think it's true at all. Um, I also don't think he's peddling an SJW agenda, because his gender politics aren't that matured. Yeah. <laughs> I think he probably lands in the middle where most people do, which is, like, probably equality is what we should be looking for. Right. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, the evidence and the, the, the amount of info I could find supporting this claim that they have this idea from the start, it's pretty, pretty underwhelming. Um, but we'll talk about it more in, in part two. The second game doesn't really need an idea because he just lifted it wholesale from where I grew up. Like, it's literally, like, <laughs> beat for beat, the narrative of the West Bank. So I don't necessarily think he had an idea for a part two. I just think he knew that if he needed to, he had a backup idea. Right. It's probably more likely. Um, now, as we discussed, the first game went gangbusters. Um, it's been remastered for the PlayStation 4 mm -hmm. and like, will probably be on every PlayStation console until the sun burns out. Um, It'll be on PS5. I'm pretty sure that's one of the games. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah great. Yeah, <laughs> I like on my new consoles that I could play the old games. Um, so true. But as every writer will tell you, the craft we do is very, very delicate. The goal of every storyteller is to assemble the right pieces in the right order to convince you, the reader, that the story is really happening and really matters to you in that moment. But the magic trick is exactly that. It's a trick. It takes a great deal of care and control and misdirection. Clearly, a delicate piece of Druckmann's creative machinery was Straley or Hennig or whoever is sitting in the chair next to him. This, in my opinion, is a great strength of Druckmann as a creative. The idea that you don't have all the answers is heartening. I think it's a good sign. But when your story relies as heavily on subtext as The Last of Us, uh, the first Last of Us, mm -hmm. it's a difficult thing indeed to construct a sequel without two of its key creative voices yeah. and two of the key creative voices of Druckmann's life. What might you lose in this process? What kind of story might you try to tell if you so neatly tied off the themes you sought to explore? What indeed would a sequel look like to The Last of Us? So join us for part two next time where we'll explore the sequel in great detail, break down what works, what doesn't, and just how and why we got the game we ended up with. But maybe most importantly, whether or not Druckmann succeeded in telling a sequel to his lauded story. Mm. And I think, like, that's, those are all my notes, but reflecting on it now, just like having gone through this a few times during the research, mm -hmm. one of my biggest concerns, one of the things that, that sticks out to me the most is just how shady his whole career comes across as. Yeah. And I can't tell where that started, but it is just a thing that exists now. Like there's just this shadow over his kind of history. I, and I almost think that, so, I mean, obviously that stuff is brand new to me, but personally what i've noticed um about the discourse around his career um after part two is that he's become he, he's kind of one of those creators like people will tweet at him like kind of nonsense and he'll push back and be like argumentative and stuff and say like random crap 
and people yeah. are like, you're being an asshole. And I feel like he's almost, I'm not going to say digging his own grave, because I don't think that's happening. But I have noticed that people's opinions of him have gone down dramatically since part two, not just because of the quality of part two, which is debatable, obviously, but just the way he approaches people kind of like, well, I'm better than you, almost, like that attitude. Right. What's well, the um, first time he's ever done something people didn't like? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like a problem for for creative person. Like you need to go yeah. through that shit young. Like you need to do that when you're like 18. Yeah. Um, not when you're yeah. like 40. Like I just, yeah, it's... um. Yeah, I, can, I kind of I actually thought about that. That is definitely true. His his public persona has definitely changed as well. Like I think the some of the the veils fallen a bit, and we're kind of seeing the real guy um, I, at the heart of it. Well, I think too what you said about um, I apologize. What was the other guy's name who was working on The Last of Us who left? Uh, Bruce Straley. Yeah, I, clearly like there's a clear differentiation between the voice of part one and part two um or the tone perhaps and i wonder like when you were saying that the more you talked about it the more i thought hmm like i I wonder what part two would have looked like had he stayed yeah yeah Um, and that's that's why i that's why i find it unlikely that they had the idea to start with because it is so dramatically different than what you would expect to be the sequel to the last of us um and i wonder how much of that is Haley gross just stepping in and being like we could do better like we should be aiming for something loftier um and when we when we get into part two um next time like one of the things that part two did is it went well the first game was this really ambitious project what if part two tried to do something no piece of media has ever done in the history of the human race um (laughs) and we're shocked that it didn't work like they seem surprised that some people didn't like it. I mean, and I just have to say, like, Grant, I've never played anything quite like The Last of Us Part Two, but I've experienced stories that are out to say, oh, you thought one way about this, but spoilers, it's actually this. Or, you know, like, it doesn't, it didn't feel that new to me. Um... Mm. And and perhaps I'm speaking more on like a generalization of story rather than on a video game particularly. And I do, th- I, I liked the game, so I don't want to sound like I'm being harsh on it. I mean, I will be, but like, I, I, I don't know. It just didn't feel as new to me. I don't know how, what your feelings on, are, on that. Yeah. Look, I think in the general story sense, that is definitely how I feel about it. The, the one thing that felt new to me was like that this was a situation where you're the one doing the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're the one murdering people and like, you're the one who like killed that person's friend. And now you're playing as that person and you care about that person, but you know that previously in that other person's role, you killed them. And it's like, I mean, we'll talk about it uh, a lot, but the game is driving for like pure ego death to try and teach you empathy. Yeah. Um, But the execution, like, much like a lot of what Druckmann aims for, I think, he's like, he has really good ideas, but the execution is the thing. And execution with any creative project is the thing that matters. And yeah. something that seems to be a common trend with people who don't fail early um, or don't really like learn their lessons early enough is that 
they never really get to a point where they fully understand the reason why failure is important and they never really get to the point where they are fully able to self-criticize in a meaningful way and i think because of the circumstances of Druckmann's career where at every stage where he's been promoted there's been some something that he can't talk about something's going on at the company yeah which is normal he's in like he's, he's in that executive chain it happens it just means that like he's probably been inoculated from a lot of criticism throughout his career because during those pivot points when his huge projects come out no one's allowed to talk to him about like what happened with his relationship with Hennig for instance right. and that would have been a great learning opportunity for him to kind of come to terms with that and, and internalize it but that's not what happened and I just think like at every, at every stage where there was a growth opportunity he was thrust further into the machine that is game development um, and maybe that's done him a disservice um, Perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna say too. Just comment like comparing Last of Us to something like Uncharted. Like, I don't know. Have you played the Uncharted games? Yeah, I played the first two. I think. Okay, so one thing that I like, cause I played those like I think in 2017 for the first time. I just played Last of Us for the first time in 2020, like in February, and I didn't realize how much I would like Last of Us more than Uncharted, just because Uncharted approaches it as, like, kind of the ludonarrative dissonance thing. Good guy, yeah. um, says he's really good, but shoots a bunch of people all the time, and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Where Last of Us is actually sort of aware of that, and in, like, a good way. And it felt like Part 2 was sort of trying to push this even further. Like, think about if you were Nathan Drake, and you actually had to learn about this man's family that you killed, and then kind of centering on him. Like, that's what it felt like to me. And obviously that is partially what it was. Um, but it's just interesting. It, it almost felt like a meta narrative on Naughty Dog shooting games in a way. Um, yeah, interesting. I, and especially playing through Uncharted again, it's just making me miss The Last of Us, <laughs> believe yeah, it or not. Yeah, it does that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Druckmann really, like, yeah, there's something that he was doing or that, that his team did um, on these projects that is, like, kind of really, really, really unique. So I don't want to discredit him for that. The, no, the yeah. The purpose of going, of kind of going through this history is, like, I think it's really important to understand how he got here because yeah. that second game is so complicated and, yes. and layered and messy and just... <laughs> Yeah. That, yeah, that it's important to understand that, like, so was so was Druckmann's career. He, he, he's not Todd Howard. He didn't walk in and fucking nail it. Like, right. th this guy isn't the fucking Wunderkind that that we would all expect him to be. Like, like Todd Howard, for all the projects he's been involved in, um, has fucking knocked it out of the park for exactly what he was trying to do. Whether or not you think that Fallout 3 is, like, a good Fallout game or, like, a good role-playing game, whatever it is, like... The thing he set out to achieve, he achieved in spades. Same with Skyrim. Like, Skyrim is one of the most uh -huh. successful games of all time. Like, Todd Howard, like, came in, <laughs> made his mark, and then proved to also be a good executive. Um, he's made some fumbles in the time since in his executive role, so when it yeah. comes to, like, Fallout 76 and things like that. But his role as a game director, he's never fucked that up. Druckmann has only directed two games, and one of them is one of the greatest games of all time, and the other one... No one can decide if it's actually good or not. So he doesn't have this track record mm. that someone like Todd Howard does. So it, it's kind of interesting to discuss his projects because you don't have a lot of touchstones of when he nailed it, um, which is kind of right. interesting. 
Yeah, um, that is. Yeah, it's going to prove a curious um, component of, of our uh, part two. Um, we'll probably be joined by a few more uh, media crit uh, journalists for that. But that's all I have for part one. Did you have any, have any closing thoughts, Danielle? Closing thoughts are that um, I, I'm excited to get into part two, especially learning so much about Druckmann, um, because I think listening to you go over stuff, I'm in my head, the wheels are turning of how we're applying this to part two. And just like, I, I think I see some things where you're going and some I'm excited to get into. Uh, mm, this, I think, and looking at a person's career um, is always extreme. I mean, not just career, but their their life is always insightful so i'm excited to to get more into this yeah same i'm really keen to sort of start to understand the way that you guys approach the text and, and what everyone sort of got out of it um and the reason that we've left it so long is it's such a complicated thing to unpack like i've played it twice now um and it yeah I, i'm really excited to talk about it um it's probably this one was long but that one's probably going to be even longer so um, make sure that you, you, you stop in for part two. Um, if you like this kind of thing, if you're interested in this kind of content, uh, you can find the rest of what we do at zeroindent.com. You can also find my book at maynardtrig.com. Uh, do you have any pluggables, Danielle? Sorry, I just wanted to oh, show you got, got a copy. book right here. <laughs> <laughs> right there. Yeah. Um, pluggables, uh, levelstory.net. Uh, Level Story is the magazine I work on, all about story and video games. Uh, we just released a Last of Us issue, so David wrote a piece for it, which he quoted uh, in this episode. So be sure to uh, take a read of that because um, there's a lot of good pieces in there. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a hefty issue. So, uh, yeah, check it out, levelstory.net. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us for part one. Um, join us for part two um, and our big deep dive into The Last of Us Part Two, which is just kind of a confusing title, but that's fine. <laughs> um, I'm very excited to get into it. Thanks for joining me today, Danielle. Thanks for having me. I'll see you guys in the next bit. It's a thought I've had before, and so I'll say it again. Broadcast is a medium like no other. That my voice can reach you now, across the vast oceans of time and space, into your very home, even for so short a visit as this one.